0: Hello and welcome to Hacked Off. In today's episode, I figured I'd just talk to you about a presentation that I did recently at the Future of Cybersecurity. This is a, a conference where you know vendors come together, there's talks on, and, and people make predictions about what they think the next big thing is going to be in cybersecurity. One of the speakers was Frank Abignale of uh, Catch Me If You Can Fair, And people were generally coming up with what what they think is coming next. And throughout the whole part of this event, I, I kept thinking that in my opinion, I don't think things are going to change quickly. I know there's a lot of talk at the moment about artificial intelligence and, and machine learning and there's a lot of talk out there about quantum computing and, and how that's going to change things. But I think for most of the companies that I deal with day to day, most of the customers who come to us at Sakama for penetration testing services, I, I think they they want to know realistically what do they need to worry about. And and talking about quantum, that kind of thing is still a little way off in my predictions. But one thing that I that I spoke about in the 15 minutes that i had on stage to get my view out there was malicious software developments or more accurately how i don't think a lot of things are changing i do think there's a big risk when it comes to malicious software and and i do think that you know we're we're seeing uh, significant numbers of companies getting hit by ransomware and and now you know we've had a, a series of uh, cities in america getting hit by ransomware where it's affecting their ability to deliver Uh, citywide services. And I I think that's very bad. But I don't necessarily believe that there's anything new in that space. Every time I talk to an antivirus vendor, they're always talking to me about the uh, next generation of protection and all those kinds of things. But let's take a little look back at the last few years. And I won't take you all the way back to the start of ransomware, all the way back in 1989 with the AIDS trojan. Let's just look at the, the last two years and see has there been any significant events which might lead a company to to believe that they should uh, pivot on their protections, they should make some significant changes to their protections over the next two to five years. And I don't really think there is. But there is one thing of note. And uh, I pulled up some uh, information on a a few attacks that I think everyone is aware of. So the attacks that I was looking at are WannaCry, not Petya and uh, the SamSam group. Um, I'll run you through very quickly those three attacks if anyone is somehow unfamiliar with those. Maybe SamSam is less well-known, but but hopefully everybody has heard of WannaCry, right? The BBC and the mainstream media went absolutely crazy when that happened. But a thing to make you feel a little old is WannaCry was quite a while ago now. That was the middle of 2017, right? So that's uh, a long time ago now, supposedly in the way that technology develops. But I'm getting ahead of myself, right? Let's give the quick introduction, just in case you have either not heard of WannaCry somehow, or maybe more likely you've just forgotten the technical details. WannaCry was uh, an attack that took place in 2017. It came about because of an exploit that was uh, allegedly released from an NSA hacking toolkit. So that is the U.S. government's national security agencies, toolkit for breaking into systems was allegedly stolen or part of it was stolen and released by the shadow brokers in one of their leaks. Now, the shadow brokers, some people predict or uh, presume, were a, a, a Russian uh, threat actor group. And those leaked exploits were picked up by what is believed to be a North Korean uh, attacking group. So there's a lot of nation state impact here. We've got the US government being involved, the Russian government being involved, the North Korean government being involved, if you believe all of the analysis out there. But the important details were a vulnerability was released. And in fact, the, the patch was the first thing that was released. The first thing that we publicly heard of, essentially, was um, in March of 2017, a patch was released by Microsoft called MS-17010. If you're not familiar with Microsoft uh, patching numbers, MS-17 refers to 2017 and 10 refers to the 10th uh, patch in that cycle. So early of 2017. The exploit that I'm talking about in this context was Eternal Blue. That was the, the name that the, the NSA uh, allegedly tied to it. So maybe if you haven't come across MS-17 010 before, you might know the Eternal Blue name for that. The vulnerability, the first that we heard of it was a patch being released by Microsoft with an advisory article alongside it that said, essentially, hey, this is a big deal. You need to patch this. And one of the reasons that they were considering it such a big deal was the fact that it was wormable. So what I mean by the term wormable is that this exploit is a prime candidate for an attacking group that want to make a piece of malicious software that can self-propagate Now, self-propagation makes this more dangerous, of course, because of the speed in which it can spread. And that is absolutely what we saw with WannaCry. WannaCry was uh, released in May of 2017 and immediately hit the headlines for hitting so many organizations. The statistics out there, I think it was uh, allegedly 200,000 organizations and 300,000 individual systems, but I won't dwell too much on the specific number, the point just being... Huge amounts of machines were infected by this uh, piece of malware. And the piece of malware was you know purportedly uh, ransomware it it demanded a monetary ransom. But the takeaway is those two details, the first being that this is a wormable exploit which makes it significantly more impactful than Traditional ransomware, where if by traditional ransomware I I really mean, you know, where it's spread in the common way. Uh, An attacker sends a phishing email, if the user clicks the link or performs some action, then they're infected with ransomware. The self propagation is uh, one of the big takeaways. And the other big takeaway is this difference between the patch being released and the attack taking place. If I remember correctly, the patch was released on the 14th of March and the attack took place on the 12th of May. So, you know, around 60 days between the patch being available and the attack taking place. And yet it had such a huge impact. And I think that that really reflects on organizations' speed, right? Organizations aren't getting these patches out quickly enough and therefore these attacks can take place and and have huge effect. But if you think about it, if you think back to WannaCry in 2017, back then when that attack took place, could you think of any other examples of self-propagating malware that had similar impacts. Self-propagating malware is fairly rare. Like I say, the, the default for ransomware, as we think of it, right, is spreading by phishing email. So this propagation thing is um, fairly unusual, statistically unusual. I do have another example, though, which is why I said think back to when WannaCry happened. And that was not Petia, which, which followed WannaCry. It's about four weeks afterwards, if I remember correctly. Um, so that'd be uh, June of 2017. Now, most people I talk to have heard of WannaCry. A lot of people haven't heard of NotPetya. So again, I'll give you a, a brief introduction. Um, in June of 2017, a worldwide cyber attack took place. Worldwide is an interesting time here because um, the attack did appear to be focused on Ukraine. And I'm not going to uh, involve any of the political side of it, but just to to describe why that may have been. Um, the NCSE uh, released a report that said the Russian military was almost certainly responsible for the NotPetya cyber attack. So again, more nation-state involvement here, but the takeaway being this is another attack that self-propagated. It, it did this in a couple of ways. That The first that I won't dwell on is uh, it used the Eternal Blue exploit. So this exploit that was released by the Shadow Brokers, or I guess more accurately leaked by the Shadow Brokers, uh, was used to, to spread NotPetya. But it did it in another way. If it infected a machine... And they had uh, ways of doing the initial infection, such as watering hole attacks or a malicious uh, update in a piece of software called MEDoc. But ignoring, for now, the initial spread vector, just the, the way that it propagated. Uh, if it infected a machine, it would read out from memory the credentials stored on that machine and it would use those credentials to try and log into to other systems across the network that it could reach. So this is a very, very similar attack to what a piece of software called Mimikatz does. Now... Uh, Mimikatz is probably not so well known, but um, it is known to penetration testers. It is a staple tool of the penetration testing toolkit. Mimikatz is old. If I remember, the first version of Mimikatz that was released was like 0.1 version was something like 2007. But the the first time that Mimikatz had this credential extraction feature, to be about May of 2011, Mimikatz was released with this ability to extract credentials from memory. And that's a hugely powerful tool to an attacker. A lot of organizations think that, well, this is a post-exploitation step. You already must have compromised one machine and you generally must have compromised that machine to a system level. So that's essentially local administrator or operating system level. So people think oh, because that's a difficult thing to do, then these kinds of attacks or these kinds of tools are, are less important. The thing to bear in mind is if we can compromise any machine on the network and extract from that machine credentials and then reuse those credentials across the wider network, that can be very, very, very powerful. So yes, it got, it's got it got a bit of a speed bump. It's got this, this uh, prerequisite to get to system, but it's system on any machine. Now, you might think, well, if you compromised a staff member's machine through something like a phishing attack, then you'd only steal that staff member's credentials from the machine. You wouldn't be able to do anything else with it. And for the most part, that might be the case. If a lot of your machines are single user, then we'd only be gathering, you know, low-privileged accounts, standard user accounts. But that's under the idea that an administrator or a domain administrator would never log into that machine. If the attacker has patience, can compromise one, two, or a handful of machines and then just wait for an administrator to log in should that happen. Then they can pull out domain administrator credentials and they can spread in that way. So using tools like Mimicats can be very, very, very powerful from a privilege escalation point of view, essentially taking you from local administrator to domain administrator. I also imagine that uh, an administrator who was compromising an organization that didn't necessarily have the best security hygiene uh, could possibly cause this to happen more quickly. So do something like, I don't know... um, install the user's printer or something like that. And if the uh, IT help desk person who comes over to, to help this user who's had their printer suddenly stop working, logs into their machine with domain administrator credentials instead of the local administrator credentials, um, you could steal those as an attacker. And that would be significant. And for a lot of organizations, this is essentially what NotPetya did. Compromised one of the machines through through uh, methods such as, like I say, this this uh, malicious upload. Uh, this malicious me doc uh, update, um, and then propagated across the network incredibly quickly by extracting credentials. So again, that automatic propagation thing, and again, a issue that has been around for a very very long time. The WannaCry vulnerability being known for sixty days, and Mimicats as a concept being known for you know at the time six years since that that tool was available. Um, yeah, the NotPetya attack was at June of twenty seventeen, so quite a delay between that taking place. So I think the, the thing that I'm trying to draw out by, by pointing at these two attacks, saying, hey, these two attacks, WannaCry and Not Pet You were, were quite special. At that time, we hadn't seen much in the way of auto-propagation uh, for malware. But hopefully everyone thinks that's significant, though, right? Those attacks were huge. They had huge impacts to organizations. What was it? Um, DLA Piper publishing that, um, I think they had 15,000 hours of overtime following that attack. With just just dealing with the remedial work, rebuilding machines that were infected, those kinds of things. So um, huge potential for an attacker, and I think a lot of companies aren't necessarily prepared for um, the speed in which some of these attacks take place. I think they maybe think of um, hacking as being quite a slow process, and, and very often it is. With with penetration testing being a very methodical uh, approach to assessing the security of an organization. But the way that attackers target these systems isn't necessarily the same as pen testing. Very often attackers will use the flavor of the month vulnerability. They'll try whatever's new. And if it works, that's an organization that they'll target. In. And I think that's reflected in in Warner Cry using that Eternal Blue exploit. That was a relatively new exploit. And wherever uh, systems are vulnerable, they would use just that one exploit. It wasn't like they were running vulnerability scans and port scans and all of that kind of thing. So maybe the way that we're delivering penetration testing as an industry is far removed from the way that attackers are targeting, and and not that that's bad, penetration testing very often uh, highlights many vulnerabilities which an organization would want to deal with as opposed to one, but it might lead companies to the idea that hacking can be very slow, very time-consuming. And why this is important is when you start looking at the ways that organizations respond to cyber attacks, Um, so what what's the first way that a company might respond to a cyber attack um i guess some companies um consider cyber insurance as a potential um protection and um at the at the future of cybersecurity event that that i mentioned that i, w- I was delivering this talk at one of the things that really surprised me from that event was um how cyber insurance is being viewed by by the audience okay it's a it's a small sample set there was a couple of 100 people in the audience but i was asking people um do they think that Cyber insurance will ever be mandatory, and I use the term uh, mandatory quite specifically because what I was trying to do there was a, a, avoid any specific. You know, I wasn't saying would be regulated, would be required by law, something like that. It's just, you know, would it would it become mandatory? And um, the vast majority of the audience seemed to think that that was a no. And the not quite direct, but but parallel I'd, I'd like to give is, um, of course, things like car insurance are mandatory. So I don't think it's a huge leap to consider that at some point in the future, businesses might be required to ensure their organization against um, cyber attacks. That's, of course, uh, without me giving my opinion on how valuable I think cyber insurance is and and how effective I think it is. But I'm just saying it it wouldn't necessarily surprise me if the industry moved in that direction. Um, Another thing that was highlighted, in fact, on the the same panel where that, that idea was raised, was um, the audience was asked whether they think companies should do more to prevent social attacks. So this was talking in the context of uh, should we invest more into teaching staff members not to click links in email, teaching staff members about malicious email attachments and things like that. And the vast majority of the audience put their hand up and said we should do more for social attacks. Uh, and I counted that with should we do more for, for technical attacks? And almost no one raised their hand. Now they, won't ge- they weren't given as, you know, uh, you can pick one or the other. It wasn't, should we do more for social or should we do more for, for technical? It was just two independent questions. And it seemed that certainly for that small sample, that the audience in that room, that a lot of people think we're doing enough for technical attacks. And and I certainly don't think that's the case. But just on the context of, uh, cyber, insurance, there's, um, there's of uh, cyber insurance, there's a lot of misinformation um, out there about cyber insurance. A lot of companies haven't investigated it yet. A lot of people... Um, think it's not necessarily the, the right way to go. But a quirk that ties it back to the NotPetya story is following the NotPetya attack, there was a series of newspaper articles, um, one by SC Magazine, for example. So it's so quite a well-known publication. That said, uh, the headline reads, Insurer refuses to pay DLA Piper over NotPetya cyber attack. And that's one of the problems right that that's one of the risks of insurance is if you invest everything in we are okay we are protected from cyber attacks because we are insured and when it comes down to it the insurer doesn't pay out then you're not protected so i think insurance should be considered but i think it should be considered as a wider protection uh, as part of a program for protections but just continuing this on uh, a series of newspaper articles uh, a series of uh, publications sorry um, the first one said, Insurer refuses to pay out to the Piper. The second one says, Insurer has cited war exclusion to avoid payout over NotPetya. And that's really interesting. Where where this came from, or the discussion that I first heard this in, was the fact that because it was believed, and like I said, the NCSC said that um, it's almost certain that Russian military was responsible for the for the NotPetya attack. There's a lot of people thinking, well, does that make it an act of war? And if the insurance policy says, you know, we won't cover you for, for acts of war or there's some exclusion in that way, then maybe that's a reason why they wouldn't pay out. And then DLA countered another uh, another headline read that DLA was uh, set to sue the insurer over this. Um, but that was quickly updated again by SC Magazine for this one on the, the 28th of, uh, of March that said, uh, DLA Piper insurer dispute, nothing to do with war exclusion. What it turned out to be was they just didn't have a cybersecurity-specific policy. The, the court reads, um, it was confirmed that DLA Piper does not have a cybersecurity-specific policy. They don't have the right cover. It's not a cyber policy. So that's a that's thing that I think a lot of organizations, if they're looking at cyber insurance to protect them against these huge attacks, is the policy right for your business? Does the policy cover the things that you think it does does it have exclusions which might come into play that you hadn't considered specifically what are you covered for Uh, and certainly look at these exclusions like what might lead to you not getting that payout should the worst thing happen but back to the main story right back to this idea of attackers using automation to make these attacks far more impactful one of the things that i see when i work with organizations and i mentioned this on a podcast before is when I look through organizations, you know, business continuity plans or incident response plans, very often the the early part of those plans I, I find to be quite weak. So I, I read one a little while ago that said words to the effect of, you know, this plan should be enacted uh, in the event of a significant impact to the business operations. And whilst that sounds very grand, attacks don't necessarily start by being significantly impactful. There is a series of small events that might give you an indicator that something is coming soon. That was true of the Not Pet Your Attack. For one of the companies that I worked with, the way that the attack worked was the Eternal Exploit uh, vulnerability was used first. Eternal Blue uh, was used to try and spread the malware. And it meant for that organization that they got a lot of security alerts in a short period of time that basically popped up and said, Eternal Blue has been blocked. An attack on the network has been blocked. And they didn't necessarily react to that or certainly not react in the way that you might expect because they said, oh, our protection has worked, right? There was some malicious traffic and this piece of software, this intrusion detection, intrusion prevention system has, has blocked it. You know, well done us for for buying that product. But they didn't follow through and investigate, well, where did the attack come from? Is it on our local network? Is it remote? Did somebody click a link in an email? Because it was seen that opening security event wasn't significantly impacted, impactful to the business. You know, they opened the incident response plan, and because it was just a minor thing, a minor quirk, they, they didn't act on it. And and I know, looking back now, people will be thinking that that's ridiculous. But you know, in hindsight, it's twenty twenty, right? You don't always make good decisions um, at the time, but it's a thing to consider. For the Not Pet your attack, it started out with just that exploit running, and then around sixty minutes later the machines that had been infected uh, suddenly displayed the ransom message that NotPetya was, was known for. So um, that attack from the start to the end was very, very quick. It was what, an hour where it was in this uh, process of propagation. And then suddenly all the machines that were infected flipped to, to displaying the ransomware. And I think some companies or some organizations might think that if the attacks play out like, penetration tests do, where it might be a four or a five day engagement, they might think that there'll be a series of security events, and then they can have a meeting about it. And they can think, oh, this is some suspicious uh, data, maybe we should do something about that, come up with an action plan, and think they'll have the time. And when it came down to want to cry and not pet you, you did not have the time. Those attacks were incredibly fast. It's a thing to, to bear in mind when you're designing your own, uh, you know, business continuity and, and incident response plans. Um, how quickly can you react? In fact, um, I, I played through a war game with one company and uh, through the Not Pet your Slides, you know, this is uh, an attack that took place. How would your organization deal with this attack? And one of the things that they said was uh, as soon as they, they knew an attack was taking place, they would immediately bring out the crisis management team. So they'd call the CTO, they'd call the CEO, they'd get them to the office. And I asked, how long does the CEO's commute? And the answer was about 90 minutes. So, okay, from the point of view, calling them to them getting to the office, the whole attack's over, right? Just something to bear in mind. The, the last thing, though, the last point to raise is about... said Mimicats was a staple of the penetration testing toolkit. A lot of penetration testers will be very familiar with that tool. They'll immediately think of alternatives like Incognito and um, other tools that can allow for that kind of privilege escalation. But the point just being really well-known tool in the testers Toolkit are there other tools that pentesters use that that could be used in this kind of automated malware? I, I certainly think there are. I mentioned one there, Incognito, could be uh, potentially bundled into a piece of malware, and that could do automatic escalation for the point of uh, propagation. And uh, I don't think this will be the end of this kind of uh, self-propagating malware. We are seeing uh, attack teams who are deploying even just ransomware, but using manual attack techniques. So a good example there would be SamSam. If, if you're not familiar with SamSam, they, they hit huge numbers of organizations. Um, over 60 organizations in 2018, I think it was. Um, key examples being uh, the city of Atlanta. But SamSam were known to use, again, common tools used by penetration testers. A couple being uh, PSExec, they used Jack's Boss, uh, NL Brute, Used um, several tools that would not be unfamiliar to penetration testers, and uh, whilst they were certainly effective, compromising so many organizations, I don't think it will be long before these attack teams start seeing the benefits to them of automation. So it's maybe something that your organizations uh, should build into uh, your incident response plan. How can you deal with these very 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 fast attacks? And that's it. That was the the rant that I wanted to deliver today. But I've got uh, a couple of questions for you. I always like to, to get the audience involved. And um, the the thing that I want to hear from you guys is um, cybersecurity insurance. Uh, where do you stand on that? Do you think insurance does have a place and does offer protection? And uh, do you think insurance will ever be mandated? As I uh, raised, it could be in the future. Do, do you think it ever might be mandatory for business to have cybersecurity insurance? Uh, and finally, um, is automation for the attackers something that concerns you? Do you think Do you think that your organization is, uh, you know, prepared for an attack, but not necessarily prepared for a very quick attack? Uh, let us know over social media. I'd be uh, I'd love to hear uh, what you guys think as well. And I will see you in the next one.